podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This episode of Red Inca, we look back at England's tour of the West Indies in 1953-54. It was a time when Test cricket was changing. England went by plane, not boat, and had a professional captain. While nations in the West Indies were finding their voice and also exchanging George Headley for Garfield Sobers. To chat about it is the author of a new book. David Woodhouse, author of Who Only Cricket Know. We discuss Empire, CLR James, high quality dower cricket, history, white captains, professionalism, riots, independence, all rounders, Frank Worrell, and impossible vortexes. Obviously, any sort of cricket badges will have come across a book or a phrase from CLR James. And when I was reading the beginning of your book, quite early on, you have the Leary Constantine quote as well, which is, cricket is one of the few ways to prove they are no better than we. This is a really interesting period of West Indian cricket you're talking about, because Constantine has already come out. CLR James is already quite well known. We're getting to that point where you don't have to be white to be the West Indian captain anymore. And then on the other side, which I find just as interesting, of course, is England are going through a bit of a revolution as well. But let's start with the West Indians. Why specifically was this period so fascinating to you? Well, I think you've got it in one, Jared, in the sense that we're in the transition. In fact, CLR James, when he gets around to writing his book at the end of the decade, says exactly that. We're in the transition from colonialism to nationalism. The islands are on their way to independence. They're going far too slowly for their own liking. And it is actually curious to understand quite why the British <laughs> took so long. Uh, certainly before Suez, I don't think the British had any feeling that they would be leaving what were then called the British West Indies until, say, the 1970s. I think they saw the process as much slower. For quite what reasons, I'm not quite clear, although the white settler minority may be one reason. But the West Indies cricket team has become, as you were mentioning, a, a symbol of that movement towards independence. It's the first, in fact, federated institution across the British West Indies. The West Indies is a construct, not a country. Mm. So the, the big islands, in those days, there were what were known as the big four islands, Jamaica, Barbados, big in cricket, if not in size, what was then called British Guyana, and Trinidad. In fact, the smaller islands didn't get a look in. There was a prejudice against the smaller islands. The, the, the sugar interest in the big islands sort of kept them out. And this is the first tour, in fact, where MCC, an official MCC side, goes to Grenada and Antigua. And there was a very good fast bowler called Frank Mason from St. Vincent, who I think really should have been selected. And the main reason he wasn't was that he wasn't from one of the big four islands. So there was lots of insular rivalry going on within those islands. But because the idea was, which CLR James certainly supported in 1953, he might have had his doubts in 1960, the idea was that these islands would become independent together in federation, slightly like the EU. I mean, some of the arguments about it are reminiscent of Brexit, I suppose. The West Indies team had great symbolism in that sense, in that it, it was felt to be a reasonably united side. That's why, of course, in 1950, when they win in England for the first time at Lord's, the famous Calypso cricket, lovely cricket, the little pals, Ramadan and Valentine, are extremely symbolic because they come from different islands. They're from Trinidad and from Jamaica. But Ramadan is the first, in inverted commas, East Indian player to play for West Indies. So that feeling that the cricket team represented all races there was very much a feeling in the 1950s, slightly different to the feeling we get 
of black power in the 1970s and 80s of a rainbow confederation, if you like. So that's why the team, I mean, people obviously read into the team different things. It depended where you came from and who you were. But I think it's fair to say that through the power of radio and indeed literature and journalism, the West Indies cricket team was perhaps the most powerful unifying force. The University of the West Indies was founded in this period as well. But the West Indian cricket team, it's a cliche, you know, it was the first federated institution and remains virtually the only one apart from the university. So I think that's where we are on the West Indian side. And while you're right to say there is a movement towards there being no taboo about a black captain, there still is, I'm afraid, in 1953-54, just mm. as it will come on to the taboo about professional captains of England. So while George Headley was given one game in, in 1947-48 against Gubby Allen's touring side, partly because of Ireland politics, but mostly because of the prevailing prejudice against blacks and professionals, he was only given one game. Constantine, as you alluded to earlier, he once was captain on the field when a white captain was injured. But even in 1953-54, there's no question really that Frank Worrell, who's already considered to be the obvious candidate to be a black captain, he is vice-captain to Jeff Stolmeyer in this series. So that's the first time a black man has ever been given tenure in an official position on a West Indies side. So we're moving in the right direction. But as we might come on to later, it actually takes another seven years until Worrell becomes captain. And of course, in Australia and England, the rest is history. So I hope that's a kind of summation of where we are. in A very interesting point in West Indian history where both politically and in cricket, the various groupings, be they racial, be they class, and class mm. and race is very tied together, but it's not an exact, precise parallel all the time. All those things are sort of bubbling away, and you have some interracial tensions on the islands where there are big Indian communities, which we might come on to. So when I, I actually came to this series through Hutton, you know, I read Hutton's autobiography and thought what an extraordinary journey he went on and what extraordinary pressure he was under. But when I actually started thinking about the Caribbean, which I didn't know that much about, although obviously... I've always been a fan of West Indian cricket. It, it just became fascinating. Let's talk about Hutton because the politics of the West Indies is the obvious one, right? Yeah. As we just talked about, you know, these nations are exploding. There's politics within the team, as you said. There's politics within the race of the team. The East Indian side of things becomes a bigger thing probably later on, but it's still an issue at this point. Mm. Less uh, England cricket is seen as this sort of constant flow thing, but this is a very important series for two different reasons. One, it's the first time that England take the West Indies seriously with the touring team. So they send over a full strength team. But for those people who don't know their history, originally when England toured West Indies and New Zealand, they did it on the same day for the first time. And so they sent out obviously not quite full strength teams. The West Indies actually got the slightly better team. New Zealand got a little bit more uh, of a backup team. But either way, it obviously wasn't full strength team. That's important. What's more important for English cricket, I suppose, is Len Hutton, who you mentioned before, and he is the first professional captain. And by that, we mean he's not from the one percenters. He's not, as Giles Clark would say, from the right kind of family. He's just really good at batting. Mm. Yes, I mean, you've summarised it very well. I mean, in terms of the attitude to the West Indies, I mean, Peter May, who was very close to Hutton, although he was an amateur, said that previous tours to the West Indies had been semi-Caribbean holidays. And I think that's about right. Of course, they did get beaten several times because they didn't take West Indies seriously enough. In fact, Gubby Allen, who is one of the one percenters we might come on to, was persuaded, although I don't think he took much persuading because he liked those sort of roles, to be captain on the previous tour when he was 45. He pulled a hamstring on the way over, skipping on deck of the ship and so forth. 
and England lost 2-0. Hutton came out as a replacement, funny enough, because they had so many injuries. And I think they were lucky to lose 2-0. You know, the weather and other things prevented them losing all the games. And so because West Indies had done so well in 1950 and, and essentially thrashed England, you know, 3-1, heavy defeats England took in all those three tests which they lost, although Hutton scored a double century in one of them. There was definitely a sense of, you know, we're sending out the big guns this time. So the series was billed, funny enough, as the World Championship of Cricket because West Indies had beaten England in 1950 very easily. And England, of course, as, as you'll remember, had just beaten Australia in a very close series in the Coronation Ashes. Now, of course, that ignored the fact that West Indies had actually lost to Australia 4-1 in 1951-52, <laughs> although the series was closer than that. But it was billed as a World Championship of Cricket. England were up for it. And I think the only person they rested with a view to Australia the next winter was Alec Bedser. So he bowled about well over 1,200 overs in Coronation Year, which also happened to be his benefit season. I think he didn't really fancy bowling on West Indian pitches either. I think Jim Laker had probably tipped him the wink that for his style of bowling, there wasn't going to be much joy. But apart from him, it's a full-strength side. And then, as you say, even more importantly, Hutton is the first professional captain of the modern era. You know, in some of those mm. tours way, way back, people like Arthur Shrewsbury, Lily White occasionally, but they were basically what we now call as a... Yeah, the first captain, they were a professional team. The first team that went to Australia that played in the, what we yeah. now call the first death were professionals, but they weren't sent... Exactly. by anyone, were they? They just went as professionals and we call it a test match. This is the first time that anyone said, we are Absolutely. sending an MCC team and we are calling it. Yeah. And quite importantly for the MCC, I think they drew a distinction between, they were just about prepared to accept Hutton at home. They pointed him for the India series in 1952, which England won easily, you know, and Fred Truman was blooded in that series and so on. And they were just about, I think, prepared to hold their noses at home there was quite a progressive home selection committee which had Bob Wyatt on it and Les Ames on it, who's the first professional ever to sit on it with tenure, actually. And also Norman Yardley, Hutton's Yorkshire captain. So I think the big wigs at Lords were prepared to hold their noses for that because they wanted to beat Australia desperately. You know, they hadn't beaten Australia since the war. In fact, if you take away the asterisk series of body line, you know, it's 27 years since they'd beaten Australia. Mm. But when it came to sort of leading MCC abroad, you know, MCC still felt it had an ambassadorial role, you know, spreading the game, the gospel. To have a professional in charge was not really the done thing for two reasons. They didn't think he'd be able to deal with, you know, the governor at cocktail parties. Well, actually, three reasons. So that's the first. The second, would he be able to deal with people in the ranks, you know, as he wasn't of officer class himself? And thirdly, you know, Hutton did have a reputation for not playing what was known at the time as brighter cricket. Constantine once said of brighter cricket, something about which we hear so much and see so little. <laughs> but, you know, before limited overs cricket, the big wigs at Lords, what Hutton called the inner circle, people like Gubby Allen, Pelham Warner, were obsessed with brighter cricket because you know, there was no limited overs cricket. Attendances in county cricket were declining. And the irony is that, you know, we, today, of course, everything in the English game, I think not correctly myself personally, is geared to the test team. Funnily enough, they felt they were protecting the county championship almost more than they were the international team. You know, they were obsessed mm. by the purity of that competition. So they didn't want things to be contaminated by you know, blocking and slow over rates and all that sort of thing. So those were three reasons MCC didn't really want Hutton to be captain abroad. And of course, they nearly sacked him after this tour before Australia. He very nearly got deposed, which we might come on to. I didn't press this too much in the book because I can't absolutely prove it. But Pelham Warner, who was 80, was chairman of the Touring Selection Committee. And I'm pretty sure he offered David Shepard the job. 
He doesn't even talk to Hutton about whether he's available for the tour until June or July of that summer. And the story with Shepard was he was a young amateur, thrusting amateur, you know, certainly played a brand of bright cricket as captain of Sussex. And of course, he was a Cambridge University man. He'd beaten Peter May to captaining the university. But he was about to start a course to become a church minister. So he made himself unavailable. They, they tried to get him back to do it again, by the way, next winter. So I think if he'd have been available, I have a strong feeling that MCC would have gone for him. You know, in their early meetings, they just automatically assume that the captain is going to be an amateur. So I think they had Hutton on <laughs> sufferance. Yeah. They give an extra amateur allowance of £75 until they suddenly realise Hutton's going to be doing it. You know? Well, David Shepherd, the fact that that is even a possibility tells you how backwards English cricket still was. So for those who don't know, I don't know if you know this, but David Shepherd was famously not a very good batter. Like he had an incredibly long first class career. I think he averaged somewhere around 24 or 25. Yeah. But by that, I mean, in those days of first class cricket, I don't think that was, you know, that would be like averaging probably early to mid thirties, probably over the last few years. Yeah. But to think that that player could be test captain over Len Hutton, who obviously was an all time great. It, I mean, they're not in the same frame as cricketers. Perhaps not. I mean, in fairness to Shepard, he had topped the national averages in 1952, I think. And he'd opened the innings with Hutton with some success against India at home. I think he was a good enough batsman to hold his place in the team just about. What had happened to Shepard was he went to Australia in 50-51. England decided for 50-51 to pick a, an old duffer as captain, Freddie Brown. He was an amateur who wasn't worth his place in the team, really, <laughs> or, um, although he actually did very well um, and was very well liked in Australia. But they picked lots of young players, young university players, and Shepard was one of them. And his sort of university backlift was certainly exposed by Lindwall in 50-51. <laughs> so I think Shepard was just about good enough to be in the team. It wasn't quite as bad as, as just throwing in a complete non-entity. Len Hutton, 79 tests, 1900s, average of almost 57, which is handy. David Shepard, who you're talking about, which is S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D for anyone Googling yeah. at home. 22 tests, average of 37. Yeah. So, you know, he could hold a bat and he was fine, but there's a big difference in the overall level of talent between a guy who can hang on at test level and a guy who was undoubtedly one of the greatest players yeah. that England has ever had. I'm just trying to think of a modern-day analogy, Gerald. I mean, this isn't quite right, you know, but imagine, say, of course, there's no amateur or professional distinction now. That was very important then. Yeah. Imagine someone like, Dan Lawrence, or maybe Pope, being made captain ahead of Root by yeah. this moment. It'd be that kind of analogy, I, I think. Yeah, I'm trying to this think. This is the yeah. important thing Hutton did. A lot of people turned amateur, gentrified themselves to get the job. So before the war, Hammond did it, obviously the greatest batsman of his generation. Mm. Hutton was extremely close to Hammond, and I think saw how difficult it became. I mean, Pelham Warner, who loved, he was potty about Hammond's classical batman's batsmanship. You know, he kind of said, you know, why don't you take a directorship somewhere and take a sinecure job and, and I'll make you captain? So Hammond took a job as director of Marsham Tires. Now, of course, when things started going wrong after the war, Warner started muttering that a tire salesman probably wasn't the right caliber <laughs> to um, be captain of England. But so Hammond did it. And then Bill Edrich did it after the war. Mm. He turned amateur. He became joint captain of Middlesex with Compton. And Red Simpson did it in Nottinghamshire. And they were all doing it partly because they wanted to be captain of their counties, but mainly because they had their, their eye on the job. And when MCC kind of approached Hutton after that Australian tour as to whether he'd be interested, 
they wanted him to turn amateur. They, and of course, lots of Yorkshire businessmen would have found him a nice little job somewhere. Hutton actually ran a sports shop very successfully, as Herbert Sutcliffe had done before him. The most militant act of Hutton's life was to say no to that. He said, I will only be captain of England as a professional. I'm not going to change my status. I may have changed my accent a little bit over the years as a matter of uh, sort of um, pragmatism, but I'm not going to change my status. And he wasn't a militant person or a, a sort of class warrior in any way, but he was very proud of that. And I think that was an important decision. And I think it brought him a tremendous amount of pressure, like most pioneers. It's exactly the same with Worrell mm. making a pioneering journey for, for, for black people in the West Indies. The guy who does it first has to suffer a lot. And, and Hutton was put under... Tri- the, the famous story with Jackie Robertson in baseball is that, that they had three incredible black players and they picked the one who wouldn't fail and also would be the most palatable to the white audience. And there's a similar pressure when you you know, you know read that story or you read Frank Worrell's story or, as, as you say, some of the early England professionals of, yeah. we're giving you this, but we have to prove that we've done the right thing. Yeah. The West Indies cricket is really interesting in this series. So... You know, we focused on England there. Oh, the other thing we didn't focus on, which I found really interesting, was that you said it was the first time England had travelled on a plane to an overseas tour. They had travelled on planes internally in Australia and so yeah. forth. And but South Africa, for, actually. But yeah. this is the first time they'd made the journey out by air rather than taking a long bait trip. And a lot of people thought the player-manager, Charles Palmer, he's an interesting story how he got appointed <laughs> as well in itself, we probably haven't, haven't got time for, was obviously worried about that because he was worried about not much team building. And there certainly wasn't much team building on the plane because it was an electrical fault and they had to detour to Newfoundland. <laughs> but yes, that's the first time they travelled out by air. So that's an interesting thing in itself. Well, again, I think that just shows how much, you know, this is this new generation that is coming about. So the West Indies team, obviously, in this series, George Headley plays his last test. And in this series, Garfield Sobers plays his first test, yes. which on its own is huge. But it's also, in, in some ways, the kind of the breakout of the three Ws. It's not that they weren't already good before this, but as a combination, they become the stars of this sort of lineup. On top of that, you've got Sonny Ramadan, who sadly passed a couple of days away, who's sort of a pioneering spinner in many ways, famous for being one of the first off spinners to wear, uh, well, to openly say he was wearing long sleeves so that you couldn't see his elbow, could bowl leg spin as well, obviously mm. Elf Valentine. Then you had the England's spinners as well, and England had this incredible team. So in the West Indies lineup, it's really changing from that sort of early era of West Indies cricket. Like Headley probably shouldn't be playing in this. He's well past his best, and his best was obviously incredible, but well past his best. And it's really changing to that new era that takes him through all the way almost to the Clive Lloyd takeover of the team. Yes, I think we are evolving in that way. Clearly, air travel is interesting as well, of course, because until air travel, the individual islands, certainly the Jamaica in particular, was quite isolated from the other islands. The capital of Jamaica is almost as far away from Georgetown in British Guyana as London is from Moscow. You know, not quite, but nearly. And so before air travel, Jamaica very rarely played in what was then called intercolonial competition. Yep. In fact, Headley changes that a bit. Headley is such an important... He was actually born in Panama, by the way, yeah. and one of his parents was Barbadian. And almost became an American dentist as well. He's got His backstory yes. is very, very random. Yes. It's interesting because Chedi Jagan, the nationalist leader of British Guyana, also went to America to become a dentist and actually married an American. Anyway, that's an aside. But <laughs> Headley's very important in bringing Jamaica more into the fold, I think, of, of the whole sort of British West Indian scene. But yes, I, I think we are evolving. And of course, certainly before the war, there would be a situation where in certain series, the captaincy would revolve between the islands. You know, the captain would have to be from Jamaica in Jamaica, 
Barbados in Barbados, etc., etc., and you'd have certainly a, more of a quota of home players in each test. Now, that was changing a bit. Jeff Stolmeyer, the white captain, very interesting character, from certainly a very privileged background, but not a completely liberal person. I think a very important bridging figure in West Indian cricket, who is easy to caricature. Indeed, Mighty Sparrow, the great Calypsonian, did caricature him during the Paco crisis, but I think deserves some credit. He tried to sort of suppress some of this insular rivalry. So I think the team was being picked on merit slightly more, but there were still mm. issues where I think certainly too many Jamaican players played in the first test, although West Indies won the first test, because they wanted to make sure it was in Jamaica and Headley had been bought back by public subscription. There's a very touching tradition in West Indian cricket to raise money for their players, either to go and train in the, in somewhere else. It, you know, even in the 1970s, Viv Richards and Andy Roberts got public subscriptions to go and train at Alf Gover's school. So Headley had been bought back for this enormous amount of money by the standards of the time, you know, three times what the other people were being paid to play in the series. So even though Truman injured him in the warm-up game very badly, he injured his elbow, I think Truman said George went down and the crowd went up. He sort of had to play. So there was still that politics going on. And I think West Indies made some mistakes during the series of selection because of this insular issue. And as I've said, there were still probably more white people in the team than would have conceivably been in the team on merit. Certainly Frederick, the guy who played in the first test, he was actually Barbadian, but worked in the sugar industry in Jamaica, was probably there to please the sort of how can one put it, the white planter community. But on the other hand, Jerry Gomez and Jeff Stolmeyer, you know, the two Trinidadians, I think were worth their place in the team, although Gomez was getting a little bit old. Very few people, I think, would argue that they weren't worth their place in the team. So they're becoming a more professional team. Stolmeyer learned his cricket under Headley and Constantine. You know, he, he had what I think CLR James would call the spirit of Shannonism. He played the game very hard. He admired Hutton greatly, the Yorkshire approach, you know, the grind them down, do them in. In fact, he once beat Yorkshire, capturing the West Indies on tour, and that was, I think, his proudest moment as a cricketer. So, of course, the West Indians also, whatever race they were, resented this cliche that was already there and already prevalent of the Calypso cricketer, you know, the carefree, lissom, talented athlete. You know, they resented that. They wanted to prove that they could play cricket hard, they could play defensive innings when they needed to. They could employ defensive tactics. Stolmar was not frightened of deploying leg theory, not, not body line, you know, but negative leg theory in this series. So, yes, the West Indies are becoming a, a much more professional team, even though the only professionals in their side were those people who went to play league cricket in England. Mm. So, you know, Stolmar is still an amateur. Anyone who plays cricket in the West Indies is still an amateur, in inverted commas, whereas the three Ws were all in playing Lancashire league cricket Headley was playing Birmingham League cricket, as was Valentine. Headley played for Dudley, but my father, he's from that area, remembers watching him play, and Valentine played for Warsaw. So we're definitely developing. We're on the way. But we've got all these issues of what does the West Indies team mean to its own supporters? Now, what it means, of course, to nationalist people, who are mostly black and in those days they would have been called coloured, you know, mixed-race people or, or even Indian people, is a force for nationalism. What, of course, West Indies still meant to some of the planter class and the British civil servants was a team that needed to be kept in its place because it was a you know, sort of colonial cousin rather than a true partner. So many of the white people in the West Indies, not all of them by any means, some of them would pass the infamous Tebbit test. 
Stolmar himself, for example, you know, in Stolmar's family. But some of them, and of course, these were the people that the English players tended to socialise, were busy telling him that beating the West Indies was a matter of life or death. There was still that dynamic in the 1950s. And that, of course, made things very awkward. They, they were in an almost sort of impossible vortex between the loyalism of white settlers and the radicalism of nationalists. It's interesting, isn't it? I think when empires begin to wane, of course, the empire doesn't know it's waning. There's this issue of all the settlers around the periphery. Many more white people left England after the war, some of them, of course, to go to Australia, but many still, you know, people were still emigrating to Kenya and the British West Indies and places like that after the war. Many more white people emigrated from Britain than immigrated to Britain from the British West Indies and, and Southeast Asia. You know, people forget that. And of course, we see this now, actually, in the, in the Russian example, though it's probably a lazy analogy, that when empires begin to retract, one of their most difficult jobs is dealing with the settlers they've left around, the, you know, in their empire. But obviously, the Pied Noir example in Algeria is a, is a famous one. But I think the English tend to forget, you know, the issues that were caused by their settler communities in Africa. Some of them are obvious in Kenya, which was going on at the time, by the way, that you know, the war with the Mau Mau was at its height mm. in 1954. So I hope I've probably whittled on too long. But, you know, there's that dynamic. The whole community is not necessarily behind the team, as it would have been, I think, almost always, apart from examples when India were playing in Trinidad, say. So someone like Stolmeyer and Gomez, they would have grown up supporting English cricket, whereas non-white West Indian fans probably grew up supporting West Indian team first, even though that they wanted to represent the West Indies. Is that fair? Yeah, I think it'd be fair to say, I mean, Gomez was actually, of course, of... of Portuguese Madeiran. Yeah, well, that's fair. He, he might. <laughs> it's, it's quite so. interesting. There are lots of people, actually. There's lots of people in West Indian cricket of Portuguese Madeiran heritage. Strangely, some Presbyterian went to Madeira in the middle of the 19th century and converted half the island to Presbyterianism. Then, of course, they were persecuted for not being Catholic, and many of them left to the British West Indies. But I think it's fair to say that someone like Gomez and Stolmai would have great affection for the mother country. Yeah, But I think it's also right to say that they were committed West Indians. There's no question of that. No, no, once they get to that point, yes. But yes. they would have had more split allegiances growing up than, say, some of the other players, which is a, now is a really normal thing, right? Whether it be yeah. uh, Kevin Peterson or Usman Khawaja or Grant Elliott, like, it's a normal thing now for us to think in split allegiances. But in those days, it would have been quite a weird thing. As West Indies cricket is rising, you have so many players who, as you say, want to socialise with English people, want to be yeah. involved, that want to be respected in England, I would have assumed, yes. as well. Whereas yeah. the, for the other players, it was slightly different. I think I'd move it back a little bit, Jared. I, mean, I think it's unfair to Stolmar and Gomez individually. I mean, don't get me wrong. Certainly, I think some people in Trinidad would view them as boss men, in inverted commas, in that they were members of the posh club, you know, Queen's Park, which yeah. had the best facilities. Andy Gantome, who played for Maple, a bit lower down the sort of racial pyramid, he's famous for having the highest average in Test cricket, 112. While I was writing the book, actually, it was really annoying because there was some Indian player who beat his average for a while, and then that New Zealand guy who got that double turn in the first time he played. So when I was <laughs> writing the book, I kept having to cross it out, but now I can put it back again. But he scored 112 in his only test match against Gabby Allen's team, and mm. he was dropped for slow scoring. And he blamed Stormar and Gomez. You know, he thought it was a not quite a sort of racial decision, but a class decision. You know, they were boss men. He didn't want to see him in the team. So I do yeah. accept that. But I think they were much more liberal, in inverted commas, than some people. Someone like Carl Nunes, the first captain of West Indies, I would say he would fall into your definition. He was a Jamaican 
Michael Manley once described him as, as from a family as close to aristocracy as the British West Indies can manage. He had a very posh house up in the mountains. And I think he would be someone who, although he was captain of West Indies, would view the mother country as the most important thing and still have a sense of empire. You know, I think for many people of Stolmar's generation, that had changed. I think they'd accepted that the empire would not last forever. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I, didn't, I didn't mean it even in that way. I sort of all meant that as they were growing up, mm. their heroes, it's not that Constantine wouldn't have been their hero and it's not that Headley wouldn't have been their hero, but also Hammond would have been their hero. And, yes, I think that's And, and Larwood and, you know, all those sorts of things, which is now, as I said, is a very common thing. But back in those days, yes. know, cricket was so nationalistic. And, you yeah. know, in the early part of cricket, again, people traveled around and played for different countries and then it's just a very interesting thing because yes, i think that's fair and of course we go back to sort of colonial theory don't we and do bond double consciousness i mean beyond the boundaries a book also about the fact that even an educated black west indian clr james of course was a scholarship boy as were many of the nationalist leaders walcott and warrell went to what i think would be described as reasonably elite schools so if you had that kind of elite education even if you were black and nationalist, you would have that in the weft of yourself. You know, C.L.R. James famously, you know, read Hazlitt and Thackeray and all the rest of it at school and Wordsworth and, and famously worshipped W.G. Grace, Jack Hobbs and Walter Hammond. You know, so hmm. because of the educational system, which was very Anglophile, you've got that if you're West Indian, almost whatever race you are, you know, unless you're from a very rural community or a very underprivileged community. So that double consciousness, I think, is there. Throughout, you know, until we get to the point where the islands become independent, I would say. And uh, talking about the islands going independent and, and everything that's happening at this point, this is around the period where, well, British Guyana becomes Guyana and yes. was going communist at the time. And certainly uh, had a strong communist vibe to it. It's not the only West Indian island that's yeah. obviously ever dabbled with that. How did that go down within the England camp, but also England government, I suppose? Yeah, well... That's very interesting. Do you know, it's actually on this day, 68 years ago, that England won the third test in what was then British Guyana. It's, it's this very day, but probably in about five or six hours, this would be the moment where Willie Watson was... But Everton Weeks was put on to bowl just to give the crowd a bit of a laugh, and he bowled him a lollipop and he hit it for this enormous six. So it's quite sort of nice to think that was actually on this day. But you're absolutely right, you know, there was a riot in that test match. The first riot... I think in, in the 20th century, the test match. I think, you know, in Australia, some of those incidents involving Lord Harris. Yeah, I don't think that was a test match. I think the riot in Australia was actually, I think it was England or MCC versus New South Wales. I don't think yeah. we'd ever had one in Australia at a test match. Yeah. We'd had a couple of cricket riots. So. I suppose Adelaide in 33 was getting close to it, but yes, <laughs> yeah. So when you read it in Wisdom, you know, or in an English account, most English accounts, it's a sort of matter of sort of bad manners. And, um, you know, the crowd has misbehaved and, you know, bottles and crates have been thrown on the pitch. And, you know, we really must, this isn't sort of what we expect. To his credit, actually, E.W. Swanton, you know, perhaps the poshest of the <laughs> English correspondents. It always gets a laugh when I do these podcasts. I, I think someone once, I think Railingworth once said of him that he was too much of a snob to be seen in the same car as his chauffeur. But he actually tried to understand the background more, I think, than some of the more you know, left-wing journalists, to be, to be fair. It's a very interesting thing. When you read it in English accounts, indeed some West Indian accounts, because, you know, some West Indians didn't want to sort of confront the political background, it's kind of, oh, there's been a riot. They've drunk too much or they've gambled too much. Of course, all these things were deeply offensive to nationalist people because they fitted the kind of caricatures of local people. 
either they drunk too much or gambled too much because the riot was actually triggered by Cliff McWatt, the wicketkeeper, going for a run for a 100 partnership. So Dennis Compton, who, of course, was a keen gambler, thought there were lots of accumulators going on in the crowd. You know, they, the middle leg had gone down and everyone was grumpy about it. But the, as you say, the context, which is extraordinary now, I mean, I don't think MCC or whoever it is now, the ECB, would put a cricket team into this situation now. Mm. Merely 100 days before the English team arrived in British Guyana. They were actually very pleased to arrive there because they were 2-0 down in the series and they were sick and tired of these white people in Barbados telling them they, they were letting the side down. So they were actually quite keen to get there. But when they got there, they saw the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders, sometimes in their shorts and sometimes in their kilts, patrolling the streets. And as you say, what had happened was there'd been a free and fair election for the first time. Remember, by the way, in many of these what were then called colonies, Universal suffrage has only just taken place. Um, you know, Everton Weeks played for the West Indies before he could vote in mm. an election. In the Trinidadian election in the war, only 9% of the population could vote because of the income requirement. The first election under universal suffrage in Jamaica is 1944. It's hard to believe now. So, you know, it's only just happened that the population can have a vote. And when they did have a vote, they voted in great numbers for the PPP, the local nationalist party which was led by this guy called Chedi Jagan. His wife happened to be Jewish, so there was a slightly anti-Semitic tinge to the Americans calling her a communist. And slightly unusually, actually, for the region, it was a multiracial party. Its great triumph was that the African Guyanese community and the Indian Guyanese community had at that time formed you know, one party, Forbes Burnham, who, of course, later becomes famous for slightly more unfortunate things as, as time goes on. He was the guy who banned Robin Jackman and so on, but also the man who probably assassinated Walter Rodney and so forth. At that time, it was a multiracial party. So they came into power. That The English allowed them 133 days in power. And Churchill, who was you know, back as prime minister in England, decided to send in the gunboats, essentially. I mean, it wasn't quite martial law, to be fair, and nor were Jagan and Burnham themselves put under precise house arrest. But they basically you know, cleared them out, put the country under a state of emergency, and that was the context in which MCC walked it. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary, isn't it? The only one I can think of similar to that, I mean, Australia, of course, had been in certain situations caused by an incident when they were out playing somewhere, is the one where England went to Pakistan towards the end of the late 1960s and found themselves at the start of the civil war that led to Bangladesh being formed. That's the only one I can remember. And they came back from that tour. Was that England? Was that that was an MCC tour, wasn't it? There's was an MCC tour. Well, you know, same thing. In, in those days, MCC always picked the team. So it's yeah. a very important point. Foreign tours. This is another reason you see why MCC probably weren't keen to have Hutton as captain. Yeah. In for home matches, because way way back in time, as you'll remember, in the 19th century, it was the home ground in England that picked the mm. team. Hence, Ranjit Singh didn't get picked every time. You know, in, in the 1900 series. So people who scoff at the West Indian selection should remember that. That's where it comes from. I mean, essentially, wasn't it? I mean, I think even Australia had a similar thing, didn't it? I think they probably did in the 19th century. Yeah, I think Australia's first test match, um, Spoffoff doesn't play because they wouldn't pick his friend as wicketkeeper. And, uh, you know, there was yeah. all sorts of local things around the Melbourne test. So, so that things evolved, don't they? So in England, that was the case at home. So a board of control picks the home team. So the selection panel can be slightly different. But from 1904, I think it is onwards, when Pelham Warner leads England and Australia, every overseas tour where England play is privately run by the MCC. 
The MCC mm. picked the team and responsible for the arrangements. So the English team plays as MCC in all games other than the tests. In the test matches, they are called England. So until 1976, I think it is. I think Tony Gregg's team in India was still probably, may have been the last one under the MCC banner before the TCCB took it over. But strictly speaking, it's a private club tour, mm. but they become England in the test matches. I mean, I mean, it, the whole thing's remarkable. I mean, yeah. One of the other things that you talked about here was even in this period where you, you have these nations becoming nations, essentially, and people who couldn't vote taking over and all these sorts of things, England is still, in the MCC's mind, teaching backwards parts of the world the rules of the, well, basically the English game. Yes. I mean, I think there's definitely that civilising mission, which, of course, many people have written about. And again, Beyond a Boundary is partly about all that. Obviously, James is saying it's a pernicious thing. We might come back to the fact that who only cricket know alludes to a line from Rudyard Kipling, actually. You know, all this idea about cricket being part of the civilising mission, the glue that keeps the empire together. And, of course, without being too cynical about it, that glue seems to be a bit stronger when we're talking about kith and kin dominions like Australia, New Zealand and South Africa than colonies, mm. in inverted commas, like India and, and the British West Indies. But to be fair, definitely right to make that point. I think definitely, on the whole, this was pernicious. But the two great cricket administrators who were often considered to be very reactionary and who were Lord Harris, the fourth Lord Harris, and Pelham Warner, both of them were born in Trinidad. You know, Lord Harris's father was a governor of Trinidad, and Pelham Warner's father, I think, was attorney general at, at one point. Pelham Warner, I think, was one of 17 children. Extraordinary, really. And um, I think the family struggled to get them all through English public school as a result. But, you know, one thing I will say for Pelham Warner, just as he had a very paternalistic attitude to professionals, mm. you know, it was all right when he gave Harold Larwood a shilling to, to bowl Fingleton and so on. You know, there was definitely still a demarcation. He does take some credit, I think, in that when the West Indies started playing international cricket, his brother was the captain of the first West Indian tour to England. Some people were saying, because of course that was the case in South Africa, that the team should be all white. That, you know, if a West Indian team mm. was coming to play in England, we didn't particularly want non-whites to be playing. Now, Pelham Warner in 1900 said that was absurd. He said, you know, the, the best fast bowlers in the West Indies are black. There's a good black batsman. It's absurd that they shouldn't play. So I think while it's right to caricature MCC as a reactionary organisation that caused a lot of damage to the livelihoods of professional cricketers and had a, how can we put it, not a racist, but certainly a, a reactionary attitude to issues like South Africa uh, as time went on, they should take some credit the other way. You know? And I don't know if you remember, you know, when Lindsay Hassett was injured when the Dominions were playing MCC in one of those late wartime games, Pelham Warner, he nearly had a heart attack doing it because he knew it was a, a sort of difficult step. But he made Constantine captain of the team. Again, something that I think many people of his class would not have done in 1944. So it's not all one-way traffic, I'd say. No, no, I think But having said all that, try to be fair to them, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> there was still, I think, a mentality that the English owned this game and were fostering it around the what was now becoming the Commonwealth, of course to sort of keep the Commonwealth together as a fraternity of English-speaking people, I think it would be fair to say. Yeah, I mean, you still hear it now. I remember recently uh, having a, a Twitter conversation with an English fan 
And he was talking about how he'd seen cricket civilize so many people. And I was like, a lot of those people were civil beforehand. They just learned how to put their front yeah. elbow up. This particular series you talked about as the unofficial World Test Championship. The 50s is, it's almost my blind spot when it comes to the history of cricket, just because I, it, this looks dull. Yes. Like, yeah, I know there was incredible quality of cricketers, but no one was hitting the ball off the square. People were taking a lot of wickets, but it was taking an age for them to take those wickets. So it wasn't like yeah. anyone was running through them. The way I look at it, and you know, from reading your book and also the, some of the bits on the cricket themselves, I would say, and tell me if you think I'm wrong here, incredibly high quality of cricket, but not particularly exciting to watch. Yes, I think that would be fair. Now, on this tour, by the way, when England went 2-0 down in Barbados, they were roundly booed by the entire crowd. You know, whether it was the white members in the Challenger stand or the the schoolboys in their stand. The schoolboys were very angry because the board had increased their admission charge by 75 cents. But they were booing because England managed, wait for this, it's, it was the slowest day of test cricket ever at that point. In fact, it was uh, Australia and Pakistan managed to break it a few years later. But England managed 128 runs in 114 overs in a day's play. <laughs> I mean, many more overs. So I think it's right to say that the play could be very slow. Mm. In fairness, in the Bradman era, on, on more doped pitches, run rates could be quite slow sometimes. Of course, timeless tests didn't help that, although timeless tests are now a thing of the past. Hutton, remember when he scored his 3 6 mm. That was a timeless test. These tests were played over six days of five hours each. So they dragged on quite a long time. Hutton and Stolmeyer both had quite an attritional attitude. It's also fair to say that Hutton was one of the first people to slow the over rate down on purpose. So in this series, you know, Ramadan and Valentine can get through 23 overs an hour when West Indies are trying to win. Hutton slowed it down to 14 at times on this turn. Of course, then in Australia, it's eight ball overs, so it's hard to draw the, yeah. the parallel, but he slowed it right down for Tyson and Statham. Of course, he'd argue that they finished the game in four days each time and, you know, uh, there we are. But So you're right to say that. Of course, this is one of the reasons Hutton gets so much pressure put on him, because he gets all the blame for all of this. I mean, Bradman pipes up. He writes an article which gets syndicated all across the Caribbean, saying, you know, oh, it's too negative. Leg and of course, Hutton thought this was priceless, given that Bradman in 1948 had been the master of negative leg theory when um, Linwall and Miller were resting between no balls. So I think you are right, generally speaking. I mean, there were exciting passages of play. Yeah. Clyde Walcott played a couple of innings where you know, he decided to go on the counter-attack. And some of the most exciting moments actually in the series, England came back, a remarkable comeback. The only time they've ever done it, I think in history, but certainly away from home, they came back from 2-0 down to draw 2-2. Some of the most exciting moments in the series are when, you know, someone like Walcott's trying to counter-attack and someone like Brian Statham is trying to get at him. But I think it's fair to say, Gerard, that certainly in the 1950s, the kind of play that we see now, which obviously is partly the product of limited overs cricket, and I think partly the product of that minor revolution of the great Australian team produced, you know, and particularly under war, but, but even before that, under Taylor, of, you know, we'll score our runs very quickly. We can generate pressure by speed of scoring as well as weight of scoring. That wasn't there in the 50s. Yeah, in the 50s, it was, you know, the aim was to paste a big innings, first innings, and to score as many as possible. And that was exacerbated on the mat in Trinidad because they had a, an insect called the mole cricket that used to burrow under the grass pitches. They played on jeep matting. Jim Laker said it took two years off his life bowling on that. You know, <laughs> in, in that test match, West Indies scored 681 and England saved the follow-on scoring 550. And while the people enjoyed watching the 3W score centuries and so on, you know, the, 
there was no chance of a result in that game. So I think I think you're generally right. But it's still, I think, fascinating in the sense that within that framework, of course, when the ball did get on top, on those moments the ball did get on top, it was very exciting. So when Ramadin went through England, and then the last test match was a bit in the wicket, Trevor Bailey went through West Indies, took 7 for 34. I did very much enjoy your T20 thing, and I like the <laughs> uh, pringle Botham continuum. I think that's very good. But I think Bailey is a bit further towards the Botham end that you might have suggested. Uh, his batting average is only just higher than his bowling average in Test cricket. But when there was a bit in the wicket, Trevor Bailey was a serious bowler. The reason he wasn't a new ball bowler was that he usually had people like Truman Statham. Statham was injured in this game, so he took the mm. new ball. He took 7 for 34 in that game. He, of course, took 11 wickets against the West Indies in 57. I would say the great Ashes win in 54-5 was partly down to him in that when England were 1-0 down, Australia, if you remember, in Sydney, were about 70 for one, chasing 140-odd in the first innings, and Bailey took three quick wickets. You know, he was a serious bowler. I believe I called him the greatest bits and pieces all-rounder of all time. Yeah. I don't take that back, because if you, he didn't really have a permanent role in that team, and he was you probably would never have picked him as a frontline batter or a frontline bowler, yeah. being that they always had better bowlers around. But at the same time, it's like, there's a reason he played for that long and was such a... Well, he's yeah. almost like one of those all-rounders that he was better than the sum of his parts because of so many different jobs that he could do. Of course, it is right. I think the point I would make is just he would need something in the wicket. So if you were yeah. if you want a completely flat wicket, I agree, he wouldn't have been one of the four best seam bowlers in England. But I think for periods of time in the 1950s, despite the fact England had a lot of great bowlers, some of whom they never picked, of course, Les Jackson because he was a... I don't know whether it was his low sliggy action or his low mining background. You know, Gubby Allen never fancied him. He never went on a tour, despite the fact he took 100 wickets for Derbyshire every season for 15 years or something. But, you know, Bailey was a serious character and an indomitable character. I don't think England would have won the Coronation Ashes without him. You know, he wasted time at Headingley to save the fourth test. Mm. And for his pains on, in this series, after all the great work he did, he got back home and the MCC sacked him for writing an article about the tour. There we are. I mean, that in itself is incredible. It feels from one of the later chapters, I think, in your book, where you talk about that sort of thing, it does feel like the England team felt incredibly uncomfortable the whole way through this tour. Obviously, the Guyana thing didn't wouldn't make yeah. anyone comfortable, I suppose, if you, you go into a foreign country and something's happening. But it felt like they didn't know what to say or how to say it, yes. and people got in trouble. Jim Laker talked about race, I think, in one of his comments, didn't he, at one stage. Yes. They felt like they were thrown in to play this tour, and you know, they're happy yes. with the cricket, but the actual politics and, and everything else was really got to them. I think that's one of the reasons I called the book Who Only Cricket Know. You know in the, in the, well, they did get a briefing from the Minister of Labour, Sir Walter Monckton, on the way out. But I think reading between the lines, it wasn't a particularly detailed briefing. And in fact, Walter Monckton's experience of foreign affairs was all east of Suez. So what he was doing, he was a fret mate of Pelham Warren, as you see. That's why he was brought along. And Fred Truman, I think, upped and said, you know, well, look, if you, he was going on his first tour. Mm. If you're going to treat us like diplomats, you know, I want to be on diplomats' pay and have diplomats' privileges, which was a fair point, I think. And Truman was one of the worst offenders. You know, he was a young man. I think John Arlott said he was feeling his oats. You know, he was playing up to the stereotype <laughs> of being a fast bowler, which, of course, Hutton encouraged. Hutton went out there with very much a sort of non-fraternisation, let's do him attitude, which I think he partly inherited from Bradman. But of course, in the West Indies, non-fraternisation had particularly unfortunate overtones. So I think the MCC came across as very arrogant 
people who weren't really interested in understanding the situation. Tom Graby got into trouble for swearing at someone at a cocktail party. You know, by the end of the tour, they couldn't wait to get home, partly because of the nationalist sentiment against them. You know, they definitely felt that, and I don't think under tried to understand it enough, and partly because of all these local white people putting pressure on them the other way. They, they were very glad to get home. And what they came back to, of course, was a court-martial, essentially. You know, the MCC was so disappointed with how the tour had gone they definitely wanted heads to roll. So Treban had his good conduct bonus taken off him, the swearing and other misdemeanours. One of the incidents was they had a club night every Saturday, you know, where they had a few beers, a few rums, I would imagine, a few drinking games. It happened to be Treban's 23rd birthday as well. And the wife of an MCC member, she sounds rather stuffy. Even E.W. Swanton thought she was a rather stuffy character. Two England players were pushing this food trolley down a corridor, and then they pushed it into the lift and started jostling her and swearing at her. And Truman and Locke took the rap, and they said it was Compton and Evans, you know, the senior pros who were busy out on the lash virtually every night. There are all these tensions in the party, actually, between North and South, between the old lags mm. and the young pros, you know. But yes, when they got back, Truman was disciplined. Trevor Bailey lost his vice-captaincy, which I think was a great shame. I think he'd have been a great captain of England. Strange, in those days, you couldn't write about a tour until 12 months had elapsed, or unless you had special permission by MCC. I mean, extraordinary to think of that now. You mean as a player or official? Uh, As a player. Of course, some of the posher officials, somehow that rule never seemed to apply to them. I was going to say, because I'm pretty sure I've read stuff from officials before, but a player, I didn't know about that rule. The reason it came in, actually, was, I believe I'm right in saying, some people might correct me, is in 1920, Percy Fender and Rockley Wilson, who were amateurs as it happened, started cambling back controversial articles about games they were playing in. So I think it was fair enough to bring in the rule maybe in those days, but you had to sign the contract to say you wouldn't do anything. Now, the issue was Bailey was an amateur, technically. Of course, he was captain secretary at Essex. He wasn't really an amateur. So he said, well, I didn't actually sign the professional contract anyway that said I had to do that. But there was a you know, really quite nasty campaign against him. I think they wanted to bring him down a peg or two anyway, you know, because I think they thought he was too... I mean, his autobiography in which he made these remarks was called Playing to Win. That's the sort of thing Lords wasn't quite so keen on. So remarkably now, you know, for a very minor misdemeanor, and in that book, by the way, he said many prescient things. He said, you know, there should be neutral umpires. He's probably one of the first people to say that because the umpiring caused a lot of the trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing in the 1950s particularly, the cricket may have been dull, but one thing that didn't help at all was pretty biased umpiring. I mean, the English were as guilty as anybody if you think about 1957 and pad player Edgebaston and so on. Obviously, incidents in Pakistan already. So Bailey said, bring in neutral umpires. He said he hoped Frank Royal would be captain of West Indies one day. He actually also said, despite the fact he was a great exponent of negative leg side bowling, he said they should bring in you know, a minimum of fielders behind leg on the leg side. So everything he said was eminently sensible. But the fact that he'd said it before the, the elapsed period meant that he was disciplined in that way. And then they tried to get rid of Hutton. I mean, a really concerted campaign by people like Walter Robbins, Errol Holmes. I think were it not for Harry Alton, who actually respected Hutton and quite liked him and desperately wanted to beat Australia, I think Hutton would have been deposed. Of course, the rest is history. His journey finishes when he goes to Australia. He does a Nasser Hussein at Brisbane, of course, and gets marmalised at Brisbane and then comes back to win the Series 3-1 with Tyson and Stadium. And that, for me quite aside from being a professional captain, is one of the greatest achievements of any England captain. You know, Australia still had a strong side. Admittedly, Miller and Linwell were coming towards the end. 
and some of the younger players like Benno weren't quite ready. But, I mean, Hutton always said you've got to be one and a half times as good as them to beat Australia. Yeah, well, especially if you go down in Australia. I mean, that was the, that was the yeah. great thing about that particular series. Yeah, and the West Indies, of course, had been a great preparation for him in the sense that it steeled him cricket-wise. Mm. He had a much better support team in Australia. Almost by accident, he had better people around him to help him. And, of course, he didn't have the racial issues to worry about with the white Australia poll. I mean, I think the NCC team did visit what was then called an Aboriginal camp. But none of that, of course and was ever thought about in the circles they mixed in. And, of course, Australians were much more likely to identify with a professional captain than mm. posh white West Indians. But all that said, I mean, I think it's a remarkable achievement. So his journey sort of ends there. And then, of course, that's why I end the book for him on the West Indian side. It takes an awful long time. We have reactionary white people like John Goddard come back into the frame. But finally, we get Worrell as captain of the West Indies. And, of course, you know the story in Australia in 60-61, where even though he doesn't win, he wins everybody's hearts. And then he comes to England in 63, just at the moment where the amateur-professional divide is actually ending and uh, wins in England. So I think we do get there. It just the 1950s, it takes a long time to get there, you know. Yeah, I wonder, because Worrell, again, as you said, so was it six years before he becomes the captain? Six mm. and a half years? Something like that. It feels that, especially, you know, reading your book, it almost feels like that was the point at which everyone who came in touch with Worrell just realized that he was, as a cricketer, he was obviously incredible. But it, it's very rare that people talk about his cricket. In fact, his cricket, for me, is underspoken about because mm. of the man is talked about so much. Yeah. That particular tour and England respecting Worrell so much, I think probably played a big part in the fact that the West Indies eventually made that change as much as anything else. Because for everything we've just talked about in this podcast so far, there was still a point between black, Indian, and white West Indians where winning over England and doing that, and, and Worrell had seemingly done that on that tour just by being himself. He was just that sort of person, wasn't he? I mean, he's an incredibly important person. I mean, obviously, there are other pioneers, Constantine and Headley, we've talked about. The other two Ws shouldn't be underestimated. Obviously, the, the symbolism of Ramadan and Kanai for the Indian Caribbean communities. And then, of course, Sobers, because Sobers, there's a great handover from the white planters, if I can put it like that, to Worrell. There is a handover from Worrell to Sobers, in the sense mm. that Worrell came, you know, had a reasonably privileged education. Sobers is the first player without a privileged education to have the captaincy with tenure. So it's an interesting journey there. But yes, you're right. I mean, after 53 54, Worrell had to put up with three, in inverted commas, white captains. Dennis Atkinson, well, Stolmeyer carried on for a bit. Stolmeyer couldn't believe it when um, Atkinson was made his vice captain when the Australians came next year. He said it was a preposterous decision. You know, not every white person was desperately trying to cling yeah. on. You know, there were some people who were progressive, I think. Well, there's also people who are cricket. I mean, at that point, if you're a cricket person, it's very hard to look at Worrell. They'd already been through that in West Indian society with, well, Constantine, but more Headley. Headley was yeah. an obvious captain. I mean, you read about Headley's cricket, and he was thinking about cricket in ways that no one had even thought about it before. Of course. I mean, Stolmeyer says that Headley was by easily had more strategic nous than any other cricketer he played with. Stolmeyer was a fervent disciple of Headley. And indeed, one of the reasons he was very happy for Headley to play in that first test, despite the fact he was over the hill as a batsman, was to have his tactical advice. You know, so it's, it's all very interesting stuff. But it must be said, Jared, you know, that, that 
we still haven't got to independence. Mm. So I think there is a feeling, just as there's a feeling in the MCC, while we have the amateur professional thing, that you can't really have a professional captain. Remember, after Hutton, there is no professional captain of England till the distinction falls away. We've got May, Cowdery, Dexter, Mike Smith. No more professional. I mean, they probably all, to be fair, deserve their place in the team. Yeah. But you know what I mean? And it's the same in the West Indies somehow. Even though we know we're going to get there, it seems to take forever. So we have Dennis Atkinson. We have Goddard come back of all people. I mean, he was a, you know, a very reactionary figure, I think it'd be fair to say. Then we have Jerry Alexander, a much more admirable person, a fine man who eventually supported Worrell in Australia. But it takes a long time. On the other hand, I think CLR James does romanticise the story. You know, if you read Beyond the Boundary, it's all down to him coming back to Trinidad and writing these brilliant articles and everyone suddenly sees the light. I mean, Worrell had been offered the job twice in the late 1950s, but because he was doing a university course in Manchester, he felt he couldn't take the job on. So it's not all one-way traffic. Uh, Vanessa Bates, actually, who you may know, is, is writing a biography of Worrell, I think. Okay. I think that'll be a very important book in terms of understanding these things more. But you're right that his symbolism, I think, is his grace. Isn't it? What a graceful player. I mean, he was a graceful player, a famous posthumous late cutter and so forth. But the grace of his captaincy. He never seemed to lose his cool. Perhaps he kept his counsel a bit too much about some of the racial prejudice and some of the issues in a way. But, you know, he's sometimes been described as the Nelson Mandela of West Indian cricket. I think that's possibly a, an oversimplification. But you can see where they're coming from in the sense he did everything without rancor, as indeed Headley had done beforehand. Now, of course, some very radical nationalists would say the very problem is that we've not been doing things with enough rancor. And of course, some one of the strains in James's book is, you know, is cricket the right medium in which we should express ourselves? Uh, it's interesting that, you know, in, in the French and Spanish Caribbean, I suppose the Hispanic Caribbeans do express themselves through baseball. And it could be argued that French Caribbean people don't really have a sport to express themselves in. But, you know, that very interesting thing about whether it's beneficial or not to use sport as a form of national expression which is something we talk about now I, I would say now i feel less comfortable with that but i feel in that period and, and they're different countries as well right so they're of course if when america uses sport as nationalism now it's hard not to hear the usa chant and roll your eyes when Afghanistan used their cricket team for nationalism, it's hard, or Nepal, or some of these other um, smaller nations who've come through. Papua New Guinea recently in the World Cup, incredible. You go the other way. So it feels yeah. like to me that that was the middle ground for West Indies. We knew that they had talented players. We know that what happens afterwards, you know, from basically the three Ws and Sobers onwards, they're incredible players, not always an incredible team, but certainly incredible players. The series that you've captured is that period of where the nations are becoming independent. The team is becoming what we know yeah. of as West Indian cricket. And everything is sort of coming together in that one period. It takes a long time because, yeah. I mean, as we know from the Basil Dolavira story and nothing, it's like, oh, Basil Dolavira stopped everyone playing cricket in South Africa. Well, that's not quite what happened. Uh, <laughs> Wait, but Warren was invited. I don't even yeah. know, but Warren was invited to tour South Africa and he was prepared to do that. He thought yeah. it would be better to do it than not. Constantine was one of the figures who sort of overruled that idea. But you're absolutely right. I think you've touched on something very important, something I think about a lot and talk about at the end of the book, however pretentiously, I hope not too pretentiously, that sport can be a great bridging thing, can't it? So in, in what used to be called British West Indian Society, Anglophone Caribbean Society, it brings people together. Stolmeyer plays with Headley and they admire each other. The communities come yeah. together through playing cricket and different classes of people. Same in England. 
Hutton and Peter May, from both buttoned up people, but from very different backgrounds, have tremendous respect for each other. Even Pelham Warner had respect for some of his pros, like George Hurst. So in that way, sport is so powerful in bringing people together. It brings people together in ways that perhaps only, say, music or drama or, or a school system, if it's good, manages to do. But on the other hand, sport has this tribal thing, this them and us thing. You know, Yorkshiremen in that period absolutely hated Middlesex, and I don't blame them. But I'm afraid they also tended to hate others on more racial grounds. And of course, we're still dealing with some of that. In fact, on this tour, it's alleged that Truman and Johnny Wardle used racially abusive language. So those balances are so difficult, aren't they? I love cricket and I love most sports, as I'm sure you do. And that's why we follow them. And we, we, I think, follow them partly for that bridging capacity. But there's no denying they're tribal, are there? You know, that when we go to a cricket match and I support Worcestershire, when Worcestershire play Warwickshire, Warwickshire are very much another for me. You know, I really want to beat them. <laughs> now, I hope I don't carry that over into the <laughs> uh, pavilion afterwards for a drink. But you know what I mean? Sport has that dangerous quality, which you've alluded yeah. to in, in sort of chauvinistic. Yeah. And then, and the other thing is, though, that... We're sitting here doing our podcast about West Indies. As you said, the West Indies is kind of, I mean, it's such a weird concept. Having spent a lot of time with St. Lucia, you know, they're almost not part of the West Indies that we know and that they're trying mm. to break into this cricket team. And I mean, yeah. you were talking about the, the big islands. You know, St. Lucia feel like they're not, and I can tell you this, I've heard this from, they're not a real cricket. They shouldn't even yeah. be hosting cricket. They shouldn't even yeah. have a CPL team. You still get that sort of thing. Yes. And yet we think about the West Indies it's because of the cricket. The universities yes. came later and the region was obviously already there. But essentially, we think of it because of cricket. It brought yeah. together, I mean, people from Guyana and people from Jamaica, uh, incredibly different, ethnically, culturally. Topographically even, yeah. Topographically, yeah. One's on an island, one's not on an island. Like, everything yeah. is different. And yet, through that game, it didn't manage to bring them together. And this is almost a time where that starts to happen. Yeah. I mean, the irony is, of course, mm -hmm. that Worrell really brings that together anticipating Lloyd and Richards. At the very moment, the Federation collapses. Yeah. He goes to Australia just at the moment that uh, Norman Mandel is losing a referendum in Jamaica. Then Eric Williams pulls Trinidad. The whole thing pulls apart. So for Worrell, it, he was very conscious of pushing West Indian cricket to be equal with Australia and South Africa. You know, beforehand, I think the colonies, in inverted commas, were considered to be on a lower rung. Yep. And of course, they didn't have veto power at the Imperial Cricket Conference. He was very conscious of that, but I think he was also particularly conscious once Federation had collapsed. He was very angry, for example, when Barbados played the rest of the world. E.W. Swanton brought a rest of the world team to celebrate Barbadian independence. Or thought that was a terrible idea. You know, he thought that one individual island should not be playing the rest of the world. It should be the West Indies. And of course, Richards and Lloyds carry that forwards, don't they? But there are still tensions there, aren't there? You know, Richards once got into trouble as controversy about what he actually said about it being an all-African team which, of course, mm. the Indian communities in um, Trinidad and Guyana weren't particularly, they asked him to think again about that. There are, there are always going to be slight tensions there. The, and, of course, the other irony is that the West Indies became the most powerful cricket team in the world, just as all of those big four islands were under structural adjustment by the International Monetary Fund, you know, by a new master. They were being economically underdeveloped. So, you know, just as they were being so proud in sport, in political and economic terms, they were in all sorts of strife. So, you know, it's a very interesting story. I mean, I've been very privileged, I think, to become interested in it. It sounds a bit poncy, but, you know, in, in that all of these ingredients we've been talking about that are interesting in sport and cricket generally in the 20th century, in the West Indies, they're probably there 
you know, in really interesting ways, all these tectonic plates shifting about. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. The book is called Who Only Cricket Know. It's available now? It is available now, yes. So everyone can rush out and do that. And thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me on. I enjoyed that. Thanks for listening to Red Inca. There is more information on my guests available in the show notes, including their Twitter profiles, if they have one. This is the important bit, though. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Share it on all the social medias and just get it out there. If you can, act it out in plays on your balcony with your loved ones. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon, so thanks to those who already do. And there is a link to Patreon in the show notes as well. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes everything sound better for your ears, and the theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets.